Hello and welcome to the AZ to DC podcast show. My name is Tony Vidali, and I'll be one of your hosts for this episode. I am joined today with Andy Lefevre, the executive director of the Arizona Criminal Justice Commission, who is performing the extra duty today of being my co-host for this show. How are you, Andy? Tony, I'm doing great. I am really, really honored and excited today, Andy, that we have as a guest on the AZ to DC podcast, Elizabeth Pike, who is the Director of Government Affairs for the National Criminal Justice Association. Elizabeth works on criminal justice policy and funding priorities and carries those interests of member organizations to Capitol Hill and the executive branch and does an amazing job. She's an absolutely brilliant person to be filling that role and providing that service for states like Arizona. And so welcome, Elizabeth. How are you today? I am well, Tony. Thank you. And I'm really honored and excited to be here. Really glad you asked. Yeah, welcome, Elizabeth. And for our listeners who may not know what the National Criminal Justice Association is, it's a membership group in in Washington, D.C. that represents groups like ACJC all across the nation, also represents criminal justice coordinating councils and individuals that are interested in criminal justice issues. So, you know, as it says, it's the nation's leading organization for criminal justice professionals. And, uh, you know, I'm honored to serve on the board and be the vice president for the organization this year. And Elizabeth is just one of those stellar assets that NCJ has that we love to take advantage of in Arizona. I like to think too, Andy, that Elizabeth Pike is the best friend of every state's criminal justice system that most of those folks that work in that system don't know, but should know. That's a great, uh, great way to put it, Tony. Yes. I mean, uh, without the work that you do, Elizabeth, on a a daily, weekly, monthly basis there in D.C., you know, I think we would be a lot further behind than we are today in uh, making the positions of the states known in Washington and and how the dollars that flow from Washington to the states is having an impact. So we're excited to hear uh, and talk with you today. We're just honored to engage with you and Andy, you as our vice president and Tony on our board. We're just, you guys are just leaders in the country on criminal justice issues and we look to you for so much so many examples of good practice and policy and are really honored to do this work we love it i've been here for i think 12 or 13 years and i've loved every day of it elizabeth we wanted to talk about several topics i think that are interest are of interest to the arizona criminal justice community But before we get to that, I'm just curious about how you are dealing with the transition to the Biden administration. I I think there's a lot of maybe negative perceptions when you have a transition in government and people think the world is going to change. And oftentimes what we find as those working in government, the change really isn't that dramatic it's not that difficult to make. There are different areas of focus maybe that a new administration has, maybe some different requirements, but but really it's all the same. A requirement, implementing a requirement is implementing a requirement. So I was just curious on, on the work that you do, how has that transition been going? It's actually been going really well. And I, I agree with your thoughts on that, Tony. I think that um, 
people think there's going to be dramatic change immediately. And there certainly is shifting priorities. But you know, what we do a lot at NCJA and with, with you and your peers around the country is working on the grant programs. And the grant programs are, are rooted in federal law. Things can't change too dramatically without Congress getting involved and a lot of voices being involved in that. So it's not a, it's not a seesaw whipping back between one area of focus and another. But the, the nice thing about this transition to the Biden administration is that a lot of the people that are going into the administration are people we've known before. They were in the Obama administration or around in some of the stakeholder organizations. So we know them, we trust them, they trust us, they know you, they know what the states are doing, they admire what the states are doing. So that's that's been great, really wonderful. That's good to hear, comforting to hear. I think also one of the things that we do know changes for sometimes the good, sometimes the bad, are uh, funding levels, although that really doesn't have anything to do necessarily with changes in administration. And one of the funding sources that we make great use of in Arizona and, and is extremely important is the Burn Justice Assistance Grant. That's basically a formula grant that is awarded to states. It's awarded in two ways. It, there's a state pot of money that comes to an agency like ours in Arizona, the Criminal Justice Commission. There's also a pot of money that goes directly to local criminal justice agencies. Um, it doesn't go to all criminal justice agencies, but based on a formula, if they reach a certain level, they can get a direct award from the Bureau of Justice Assistance. And so, you know, we're always concerned about that funding level. I've been managing that grant for a number of years. I've had years where it went down a little bit and went up a little bit, but has been relatively stable. You got, do you have any sense or can you give us an update on where you think that funding level will be for this year's budget? Yes and no. This is a really perfect time to have this conversation. I think probably we're going to touch on a lot of things that are up in the air or very current just even this week. Um, so it's a good time for this. On the funding level, what we know is this. We, the, the president proposes a budget every January and President Biden's budget was very generous about the state and local justice assistance grant programs, including Burn JAG. President Biden is very aware of this program from all of his years around Delaware serving as chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. So there's really solid support out of the White House. And we have then, you know, there's the schoolhouse rock. We know that the House then has a bill, appropriations bill, the Senate does, and then they conference it and send it to the president. We've only had one part of that process so far in the Congress, which is the House has released and passed through committee their annual fiscal year 2022 appropriations bill. And in that bill, Burn JAG is funded almost exactly level to last year. And like you said, it's been it's been pretty stable. It's it's taken it took a big drop in 2010, but then it's been pretty stable since then. That bill also though includes substantial new funding for 
priorities of the White House and the Democratic majority in the House. So there was a lot of new money for improving policing, for diverting individuals from jail, from reducing bias in the justice system, and other community-based supports for justice-involved people. So while there's not a lot of there isn't any new money for burn jag there would be if the house bill prevailed quite a lot of new money for these these purposes in these programs the senate appropriations committee has not yet um, released their bill although they might the fiscal year ends at the end of this month and there's no way congress is going to be able to pass the new funding bills by then which is why you're reading in the news that Congress is going to have to move what's called a continuing resolution, which is just basically permission for the federal government, federal agencies to continue to fund programs at last year's level until they finish an appropriations bill, which most people think will probably be the end of the calendar year. Elizabeth, uh, kudos for the mention of Schoolhouse Rock, uh, which takes me back (laughs) to Saturday mornings. Uh, where I first probably learned what a bill was, and I thought they actually walked and talked for a while. <laughs> you mentioned new funding that may be available. Would, in your opinion, is that going to then take the form of new grant opportunities that would roll out of BJA to fund those purpose areas? Or do you feel like that would be money that would be added into existing programs like the COPS program or something, which I know is for hiring, but would they add provisions that would take care of some of these other priority areas, or in your opinion, would that be new grant opportunities? It would probably be new grant opportunities that states, locals, or nonprofit service providers could apply for. And let me just actually talk about, if if this is a good time to also talk about the other things that we're reading in the news, these infrastructure bills that are being negotiated right now, there's the transportation infrastructure bill that is bipartisan it has been agreed to and it can pass easily in both chambers then there's the human infrastructure bill which is more partisan it's it's the democrats bill they're not expecting any republican support for it and that is in the news it's talked about as the 3.5 trillion dollar bill if it passes it will be narrowed down it will be probably a lot less than that but in that funding bill, the text that's been released, there is $5 billion for community-based violence reduction initiatives split between, evenly between the Department of Justice and the Department of Health and Human Services. So that also, Andy, if it happened, would be grant money that would perhaps be put through existing programs, perhaps also or entirely new competitive programs, but that could be pretty widely used for community-based supports. And it's specifically to really attack the rise in violent crime that we're seeing right now. Great, thanks Elizabeth. Do you feel there's a, there's a lot of this money that's that's coming out and, and, and rightfully so around opioids and whatnot where you know a, a chunks of money are going to departments of health services or, or the, the single state agency for substance abuse in the states. You know and there's really that nexus with the criminal justice system with what they're trying to get at. Is there talks on the hill 
or at the uh, cabinet agency levels about trying to have better coordination between uh, you know, health and human services agencies and criminal justice agencies like ACJC in the states? Yes, I'm so glad you asked that question. There is a very intentional coordination at the federal level, and we at NCJA spend a lot of time working on how do we bridge those areas of policy at the state level and how do we support that? And one one thing that ev all of your listeners should be aware of is that over the past 18 months of COVID, there have been two substantial economic relief packages that came out of Congress, the CARES Act and then the American Rescue Plan Act. Both of those bills provided a lot of money for states and local governments to just stabilize their economies and to fill unmet needs and or you know address emergencies that were going on in the states because of COVID. And any of that money can be used for criminal justice response purposes. And a lot of what has happened with that money is that governors and mayors and county councils have been really leaning into that cross-agency collaboration because there are all these different funding streams that were coming out targeted to COVID relief. And to be able to use that money to the highest and best purpose, they really need to coordinate across those agencies. So I would encourage everybody to become aware of where that COVID relief money exists in their communities, what's available, and understand that it's coming through different funding streams that can be coordinated to help the folks that we're all trying to help, the justice-involved people. A couple of points too, Elizabeth. Number one, you had mentioned the coronavirus emergency supplemental funding. Much appreciation to you and NCJA for the work that you guys did on that CESF funding and having it run through the state administering agencies. I think that was a very effective way to get those dollars into the criminal justice system where they were needed because we've, as, as the state administering agency, we've established those relationships with many of our criminal justice agency partners at the local level and state level. So much appreciation for that. The other comment for you is, I think sometimes we think of the world in terms of burn jag and that all money that is dedicated to the criminal justice system should be just like burn jag or should be rolled into burn jag and distributed to state agencies in the same manner. But you had mentioned, you know, there are these other areas of need that dollars are sent to. And what I appreciate most about that, I think, as a, as a recovering fiscal analyst is that I think that has created some stability in the burn jag and the amount of money coming into, into states. For every peak, there's a valley, and for every valley, there's a peak. Meaning that, you know, in a year where you're getting a large influx of funds through some, some program, there's going to be a time when it's going to be a large reduction. And, mm -hmm. and which creates great in instability in budgets and does create problems at the state and local levels and finding resources that for maybe a period of years you didn't have to find. And so I, I think the stability of burn jag has existed to a benefit, but that has not meant that 
there aren't dollars coming into states for criminal justice functions and criminal justice efforts, just maybe through other programs or other means. Tony, before we move on, just a quick plug uh, to, to kind of follow up with the mention of the rescue plan dollars that flow, flowed into Arizona. Uh, for the for our listeners who had not seen yet the press release, we, we want to once again thank Governor Ducey for providing up to $1.2 million into the victim compensation program in Arizona out of those Rescue Plan Act funds, which is going to go a long way to helping to stabilize you know, that program over the next couple of years. So uh, to your point, Elizabeth, you know, looking for ways to utilize those other sources of funding to, to, to stand up or stabilize the criminal justice system in Arizona. What about another grant program that is, I'll say, much smaller than the, the amount of funding that we utilize through the Burn Justice Assistance Grant, but I think has been incredibly impactful at least in Arizona, and that is the Residential Substance Abuse Treatment Fund. I know, Elizabeth, that a little while ago, we were talking about a reauthorization for the RSAT program, and mm-hmm. that, that had there were some new, new provisions that were proposed. Where does that stand? So the bill is pending in the House, and it will do three main things. It will authorize treatment for your pre-trial detainee population. It will encourage RSAC-funded programs to use medication-assisted treatment. And then the third is a provision that I think is going to be particularly helpful long-term. It would require the medical staff, the medical director or contract doctor for the RSAC-funded prisoner jail to go through uh, training on addiction issues, on the science of addiction, on the clinical issues related to the different medication-assisted treatment drugs and other issues around the treatment of people in a carceral setting. I have a a question about the time length of of treatment. You and I had had some some correspondence about the minimum time length established. And I had some concerns about the the pretrial piece and how that would relate to jail treatment. So basically the old rule was a a residential program. It had to be a minimum six month treatment jail program, which really kind of wasn't defined in the statute. So it wasn't really clear to me where this came from, but in the solicitation, it defined a jail as a, a, a three-month minimum. And now you have maybe a possible expansion for the pretrial detainees. Obviously, there's no way to guarantee that a pretrial detainee would meet a three-month minimum. So there's going to have to be some some change to to the minimum time length required for treatment. And I think one thing that I was worried about was, would we be treating pretrial detainees that are in jail differently than individuals who are sentenced to jail in that same jail, would we be treating them differently when it comes to the availability of treatment? So the bill requires that the treatment program adhere to certain clinical standards and those, and and it's clear in the bill where you're supposed to look for those clinical standards. And I think the idea is, Tony, that the science and the medicine is changing really quickly. And with the 
wider adoption of MAT, there are just more possibilities to provide medical support for someone on a shorter time period. And then there's also the requirement in current law, but it's it's amplified in the in this new bill, that you have to do pre-release planning. So you would have to make sure that whatever you started in in the jail, that person can continue in the community so that they don't have a lapse in medication and that they are, you know, connected directly to support as soon as they get out. So I think the idea here was to just make it a little bit more flexible to reflect the science and the medicine and then the standards and those those clinical standards will um, shift as as the medical field learns more. Makes does that sense. make sense? Yep, it sure does. Sure does. Regarding the training requirement, do you know is that a training that is developed and and by some entity and then managed by? BJA and, and people access and take, or is it just some kind of training standard that providers will have to go out and meet and show and document that they meet that stand, that training standard? That's a good question. BJA would describe what that is, but yes, this is training and curricula that exists. There are trainers that provide this. It's one day training. And the beauty of it being a part of the RSAP program is that the grant then would pay for the doctor or the nurse to go through the training and for the time that they take to do that. So it's it's well established, it's out there, it's not very expensive. And so we think this will be pretty easy to implement. That that's good. I, I know we had a we had a, a what I think is this will turn out to be a very similar experience to the burn justice assistance requirement that task force participants take a task force commanders training, and yeah. and we had to figure out how to how to track that and make sure folks were taking it and and I there's probably a lot of collective eye rolling that task force participants made because they had to take this training. But now here we are many, many years later, that training provision is still in place and folks do it. They comply with it. They report it to us. It's not a problem. So I was just curious um, as to kind of the structure and availability of that training. And, and I think it'll be the same. So I, I think that's I think all, so all too. good news. Good. I think so, too. And no one is going to have to reinvent the wheel on this. It is existing curricula and, and it's online training. No one has to go anywhere. So it's going to be, I think, pretty simple, more simple than most federal good. requirements. Yeah, good. <laughs> right. Right. I appreciate that. So, Elizabeth, I, I think we're going to switch focuses just a little bit now. I think Tony's got his questions done on, on our set. Um, talk a little bit about the, the VOCA program and, and some of the changes that have just been made. So as we mentioned, the ACJC runs the State Victim Compensation Program in Arizona. Our sister agency at DPS runs the Victim Assistance Program, um, both of which are provided funding out of the Federal Victims of Crime Act fund. And, you know, that fund had been expanded dramatically about, I think, maybe five or six years ago, federal funding-wise, and there's been some concern around the level of funding that 
is available in that fund. Can you talk a little bit about the bill that was just passed and, and what that's going to do to help stabilize the BOCA fund? Yeah, sure. So you're right that the balance in the Victims of Crime Act fund has been dwindling, but that's really more relative to the um, extreme expansion that had happened over a couple of years, as you said, five, six years ago. So there's been a real concern that at the level of spending, we will run out of money in the fund, and that would be a real tragedy for victims of crime. So this bill simply would, it's really a technical fix. It simply would add a different category of federal criminal receipt to populate the fund. So it just basically turns on the spigot of another kind of criminal settlement that the U.S. attorneys do when they prosecute crimes and allow some new monies to come into the fund. It will only stabilize the fund. It's not going to get it back up to prior levels. I think it's important to point out that this fund received monies from criminal fines on convictions. And there was a point in time when the balance on this fund was fairly robust, but I think that was directly related to some rather big cases. For example, um, when I was the victim services manager at ACJC, I remember a big deposit from the Enron case. That's right. And I think at some point there was a transition to move away from those you know, criminal prosecutions, and so no criminal prosecution, no conviction, and you had these diversions that, that happened, these um, prosecution diversions. And maybe there was a fine attached to uh, or an agreement for diversion, but that fine went into what would, be, I guess, basically be a, a general fund and not, not a specific fund like the Crime Victims Fund. And so you had more of those things happening, which maybe on the criminal side of the equation was a better, um, a better approach to use and a better outcome um, in holding people accountable, but it had an, at least in part, it had an adverse impact on the, the crime victims fund. You couple that with an increase in spending that occurred because there was such a large fund balance and people felt that there was more good to do with spending that fund balance and getting money out to states and their victim assistance and victim compensation programs that you had, you had a perfect storm brewing. You had less less money coming in because you changed a process and you had an increase in spending to spend down a fund balance. At some point, that fund balance was going to go away. And so I, I think it's important to point that out unless I didn't articulate that um, correctly, Elizabeth. And if I didn't, please correct me. That was beautifully said, far better than I could have done it. That's exactly right. That's exactly what happened, Tony. And so what this bill does is it just takes the receipts from those, they're called non-prosecution non agreements and deferred prosecution agreements and, and use those to populate the fund. So we're expecting several billion dollars in the next couple of years into the fund, which will stabilize it. And then the appropriators will have to make a decision about how to try and even out the funding that is let out of the fund every year for Victims of Crime Act programs. There were a few other changes made in that what's called the VOCA Fix Act, but the one that is probably relevant here is that it increased the reimbursement 
for federal reimbursement for compensation programs. So there has been also because of these dynamics that you described, Tony, there has been a growing imbalance between the assistance side of the program and the compensation side of the program. This provision in this bill doesn't really fix the compensation side, but it gets us started to a place where compensation will be more stable also. Yeah, great. Thanks, Elizabeth. So uh, let's let's move on to the easiest question on the list then. <laughs> um, obviously, uh, there's lots of conversations going on at the federal level around policing reform. Uh, any any updates on, on some of those conversations and, and where you think those may lead uh, either via bill uh, bills that have already been introduced or, or what may ultimately end up being passed? Well, as I said at the outset, Andy, this is absolutely perfect timing for this conversation, and this is another reason why. Just yesterday, the lead negotiators um, in Congress on the policing reform bills declared defeat in being able to get a bipartisan comprehensive bill negotiated this year. So it's been a little over a year since George Floyd's death, and they've been working on this for since last May, last June. And really what happened was they started with the big issues. They started with the issues that are very much in the news, banning chokeholds, banning no-knock warrants, trying to come to an agreement about how there could be more transparency in officer disciplinary records so that you don't have that bad apple being able to move from one department to another. And then there was the issue of qualified immunity and the ways that the victims and legal system might be able to hold police officers accountable for bad behavior. They made progress on those issues, but never really came to agreement on those issues. And then there were a whole raft of other issues underneath those big ones that hadn't even really been touched yet. So in terms of the negotiations. So, and you you put on top of that, the fact that Congress is and the administration are trying to deal with COVID and stabilizing the economy and foreign affairs issues. And this just didn't get the air that it needed. So, I think it's probably true that for now, that bill is stalled. It's not to say that it's off the agenda. I think it will definitely come back. It's gonna be something people are gonna be interested in trying to come to agreement on. And I will say this, and I've said this to both of you before, despite what's in the news and all the finger pointing and partisan recrimination, in fact, the differences weren't that vast. We started out last summer with a House Democratic bill, a Senate Republican bill, and in their core, they were the same. They had all the same issues. There was just a difference in intensity and requirement versus just nudging. But the issues are the same for everybody, which gives me a lot of hope that if both sides really want to make something happen, they can. However, when you look <laughs> at those provisions that were proposed, 
they may not be implemented through a law passed by Congress and signed by the president. But as the saying goes, there's more than one way to skin a cat. And so what's the possibility that we see some of those provisions end up in as a, a special condition of grants? Well, that's the thing that I spend a great deal of my time and sleepless hours thinking about. The Both of the bills, the House Republicans and Democrats bill, relied, put, put, put on states and local law enforcement and state and local governments a lot of requirements for how law enforcement should reform behaviors, procedures, policies, training requirements. There, there's a very comprehensive list of changes and mandates on law enforcement. Almost every one of those, they attached to a penalty on BRJAG. So under our system of government, under our constitution, Congress really can't tell states and local governments how to run their justice systems. So they kind of are left with two options. One is to, you know, create grant programs and provide federal money to try innovation and test new things and, and get them to do training or new policies. The other option is to try and penalize, incentivize or penalize. And how they do that is often, very often, by trying to penalize the burn JAG program. We have a whole podcast on this penalty issue coming out at NCJA, which we can forward to you later. But so that's how they chose to do this. And so you're right, Tony, that if they fail to pass a full policing bill, there will be efforts in this year's appropriations bill. And I can see many, many other bills coming along over the next month that would try and tie burn jag to a particular policing requirement. And it's not that we don't support those changes to policing. It's just that you're taking away money that is going for really good purposes and, and really impactful programs to try and incentivize this change in another area of policy. And it's just awkward and complicated and often doesn't work. And it can get to the point where we were under the Trump administration when there were requirements imposed related to immigration that essentially prohibit if they did, if states didn't meet that those requirements that prohibited those states from receiving the burn justice assistance grant funds makes you wonder how many of these provisions can be implemented in a grant and if not implemented funding withheld before you get to the point where essentially it's the same argument you're making you're trying to implement policy through this grant program and the grant program really did not deal with that particular policy or compliance with that particular policy. Well, Tony, that in, in uh, civics uh, terminology is what we call the golden rule of government, which is he who has the gold makes the rules. So, uh, you know, you're correct. It's, you know, if you want to get the funding, you've got to follow the rules. But as the outcome of those court cases showed, uh, you right. make the rules, but you got to you got to follow the rules when you're making the rules. And so I just wonder, do we get to a point where 
these provisions are being imposed on states and then we get and and if they're not implemented by the states you're penalized or funding is withheld and then you're back in court under the same the same argument that that's not an appropriate way to implement policy is through this particular grant program yes it's a really good question we don't have any indication that the biden administration plans to do that but you're right that when the trump administration did that it was litigated and federal appeals courts all over the country struck that down so we even if that was tried again for the purpose of policing reform i i don't think it would be legal unless it were tried maybe there's a different way to do it because it's up to congress to say what that grant program has to do and unless that requirement is in the underlying burn jag statute it, it's it's not law. So I I think there will be efforts for sure to try and find other ways to get the same policing reform requirements and priorities advanced. And and of course states are doing it all the time. I mean there's a tremendous amount of state legislation all over the country in every state on policing reform. So this is all happening. The question is is Congress or the administration going to weigh in and and do this absent a wider policing reform bill? And I think it's just too early to say. Before we give you a, a minute or two just to kind of highlight some stuff that NCJ is working on, I, I did have a question or, or or wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, we, we provide this funding out to task forces and prosecution efforts, crime labs, all, all kinds of things. And, and oftentimes, you know, those folks are reporting in on PMTs and putting data into systems. But in your opinion, what is the best way that we could help uh, in our local law enforcement partners send messages or get information back to D.C., to the congressional offices to let them know what they're doing with that funding? What you know, what how can we help your colleagues in Congress better understand the impact of burn jag funding or the funding of some of these programs it's so important because when you think about any member of congress they have so many responsibilities they can't possibly know how any single grant program is impacting life in their states or their districts and so you have to tell them if you want somebody to know something you have to tell it to them and so we are always encouraging of folks to send letters or invite your member of Congress out to tour. That's been harder during COVID, but to come tour a program and talk to them about the impact on the ground, get to know their district office staff who really, really want to know how the federal money is being used and the impact it's having. So happy to talk another time too, Andy, about ways to effective ways to communicate with your congressional delegations, but they want to hear from from their constituents. They want to hear about how the money that they're appropriating is being invested. And we just encourage everybody to do that. Well, Tony, I think we've heard Elizabeth already agree to come back on your podcast again. So we'll have to make sure we schedule that. I believe that's true. And I know Elizabeth is a woman of her word. So she's very reliable, too. So (laughs) You know, Elizabeth, the work that 
you do at NCJ and your colleagues do, um, and uh, the executive director, Chris Asplin, just amazing stuff that you're doing. I've been around NCJA in some form or fashion for well over 10 years. Maybe not as involved as I am now uh, in the early years, but certainly I was well aware of what NCJA was doing when I took over the the drug gang and violent crime program for the Criminal Justice Commission. And it's just amazing stuff where you're at, where your organization is at today. You had mentioned earlier your podcast plug for those that may listen to this episode, NCJ's podcast series. They cover a wide array of topics. They talk about great stuff. They have great guests. So I, I certainly encourage folks that may be listening to this to check out NCJA's podcast. But anything else that you would like us to know and like people listening to this podcast to know about what NCJA is involved with? We, we're here to support you. We're here to support state and local justice systems. We're very mission focused on strengthening our justice system. So we are trying to bring current issues to the states and to bring the current issues from the states up to the federal government to be a conduit for that conversation back and forth between the federal and state governments. And so we do that in a lot of different ways. We have um, a terrific training and technical assistance team that helps states and local criminal justice planning boards with strategic planning, with how to pick and implement good promising programs and policies, how to measure the effectiveness of those policies. So we do that in lots of different ways. We do that individual training, regional trainings. Like you said, we do podcasts. Of, I've done one on the Burn JAG program. We're just about to post one on this whole issue of Burn JAG as penalties. But those are podcasts are about lifting up good examples of programs and practices in the States for others to learn from. We, if you're a member of NCJA, we have a lot of written material on promising practices. So we really try and help everyone understand how to improve your justice systems in whatever way you need. And our TA team is always willing to help. And we'd love to have anybody join as members and get all of our other materials. Tony, you know, as a, a reformed uh, Beltway insider myself for many years in D.C., you know, I think the point you made, Elizabeth, about there is a bit of a bubble in D.C., and it is hard to penetrate that sometimes and let folks know. So, it, you know, we have to do a better job at ACJC of, of helping our our stakeholders get their messages back to D.C. because I think, you know, it, it can't just be a one-way street. It's got to be a, a two-way communication on on what what's going on so and 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 i will say this you know elizabeth I don't, i'm not aware of anyone who's a more effective spokesperson for the issues that they deal with than you are in dc and and we're thankful for you every day at acjc for the work that you do and, and as tony said as your other colleagues at uh, ncja do on behalf of the criminal justice commission and the system and our stakeholders so with that I, i'd like to say thank you for joining us today on the AZ to DC podcast. I think I said that right. You did say that right. I echo your appreciation of Elizabeth, one of the most brilliant minds that I've had the pleasure of being in a room with. I'm, I'm oftentimes in a room, Andy, with people that are 
far more intelligent than I am. I'm just smart enough to recognize that. But when I'm around people like Elizabeth, absolute brilliance and talent, and we are absolutely lucky as a member organization to have her speaking on our behalf and advocating for us and on our side. So we so much appreciate, Elizabeth, you taking the time to talk with us. And we hope that you can cut some time out of your busy schedule and circle back around and visit with us and and give us an update on as the world changes in DC, how that world has changed. Well, thank you. You're going to make my head explode with all those compliments, which are, of course, entirely untrue. But uh, I love this conversation and would love to come back anytime. And it would be great also to have Allison Badger, who runs our training and technical assistance program, to come talk about all the resources they have for all states, localities, social service providers. We we really are trying to just corral resources. And my favorite word is to curate resources for this audience. There's so much out there, so many voices in the criminal justice system that we try and curate it for the state and local government audience. And for those of our listeners that are interested, they can check out all that NCJA has to offer by going to their website, which is www.ncja.org. Thanks, Elizabeth. Look forward to talking to you. Great. Thanks, Elizabeth. Thank you both. Okay, bye. The AZ to DC podcast is an Arizona Criminal Justice Commission production. For more information about the Arizona Criminal Justice Commission, visit www.azcjc.gov or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you like this podcast, please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts.